Hello and welcome to season four of Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling more confident with me, your host, Paul Armstrong, creator and curator of TVD Conference. The theme this season is the real future of work. What's really going on with the world of work under the hood? What's changing? What's not being said? We're checking assumptions, checking in on ourselves and also the future. I spoke with an amazing array of people from Dan Pink to Harvard University professors, TikTok superstars, data specialists and generational experts, all live on Twitter spaces. What follows is a recording of that space, so it's more conference call than podcast booth. Sponsors are incredibly important to me, and I am proud to say Ecology are back, and they planted a tree for every live listener we had. We're over 15,000 trees in the TBD forest now, and you can start planting your own over at ecology.com. That's spelled E-C-O-L-O-G-I dot com. Workplace by Meta also came on board this season. Their familiar features help everyone work together in new ways and whatever you bring to work to help you be you, Workplace celebrates it. To make your place of work a great place to work, visit workplace.com forward slash human. Check it out. It's very, very cool indeed. Make sure you never miss a moment of Mouthwash by signing up for the newsletter over at mouthwashshow.com. And you can also get a text alert over at mouthwash.norby.live. Very handy for busy people. Check out all those links in the description too. As with all good podcasts, please share it on a network you trust and leave us a review. It really does make a difference. Please enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to season four of Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling confident with me, your host, Paul Armstrong, uh, creator and curator of TBD Conference. The conference attendees say is like Ted without the bullshit. We're flipping it up this season. We're live on Tuesdays through Thursday. You get the same amount of mouthwash. Don't worry, we're just spreading it over the middle of the week. It's a reflection of the times, actually, and changing world of work, which is our theme for this season of Mouthwash, the real future of work. This season, uh, we're exploring what's working, what's not. We're checking assumptions, checking in on ourselves and also the future. I want to know what's really going on under the surface, where it's all going and how we're going to get there. I have an amazing cohort of people joining me this season from multiple best-selling authors like Dan Pink to brand new startups who are creating new models for the metaverse. I'm also discussing the future with experts from the likes of Harvard University to behavioral psychologists and TikTok superstars. You can check out the full lineup and previous episodes over at Mouthwash, uh, and that's mouthwashshow.com. I am proud to say that we are also sponsored again this season, this time by the beautiful folks over at Workplace by Meta. Whatever you bring to work to help you be you, Workplace celebrates it. Their familiar features help everyone work together in new ways and make your place of work a great place to work. You can visit workplace.com forward slash human. That's workplace.com forward slash human. Check it out. It's all very cool indeed. Um, Ecology are also back to plant a tree for every live listener in the TBD forest. We are over 15,000 trees strong at the moment. So if you're looking to reduce your or your business's carbon footprint head over to ecology.com and you can start planting your forest today that's ecology.com or e-c-o-l-o-g-i.com um, for those of you in the live space, now's a really good time to share the space, let people know uh, that you're listening to something fun. So if you click the bl- uh, round blue plus button in the bottom right hand side of your screen, you'll tell the world uh, that you found something good. And everyone that you get into the space means another tree in the world. And that's no bad thing. Uh, so, yeah, please do that now. Um, Want to ask a question? Just DM me or use the mouthwash show or one word hashtag and we'll pick it up from there. Joining me tonight is Daniela Taff. She is ex obsessed with making the world a more connected and inclusive place through community, cultural experiences and events. Uh, She's currently the CEO and founder of Badassery. That's a marketplace for event organisers to book perfect speakers in minutes. Often, I think it's three clicks, we'll talk about that a bit later. Daniel's on a mission though to amplify as many voices as possible while connecting them to each other along the way. 
She also previously ran Shine, and that's a brand that helps make it easier to take care of yourself. But uh, she was also on the founding team as head of programs and community for Built by Girls, which was a social impact brand that created uh, a new wave of tech leaders. Um, so yeah, most of those were teen girls and just tiny supporters like the likes of Michelle Obama. Um, she's doing fantastic stuff. I have actually used Badassery. Uh, I booked someone for Mouthwash and also TBD through it. So really good fun. Welcome to Mouthwash, Danielle. What did I miss out of your bio? Oh, I think you covered it, Paul. That was awesome. Um, what did you miss? What did you miss? No, I think that's it. Maybe where I'm based out of right now, I'm based in the US out of Boston. But otherwise, no, you covered it. Yep, I missed I missed where you were this evening. I normally always get that, but I didn't. Um, <laughs> no tell me, what, what was the first thing you thought of when you woke up today? I thought about the candy that I bought last night, actually. I love gummy worms. So I just, for some reason, it was still on my mind. Gummy, I would not have placed you for a gummy worms person. That is new <laughs> yeah. information I've found about you. So that's interesting. I feel like I only tell that as my deepest, darkest secret. But now I realize this is out in the world. So yeah, not many people know that, but it's truly my obsession. <laughs> hey, <laughs> hey, there are worse ones, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> we're obviously on the future or future of work season. Um, tell me about your current situation when it comes to work. Are you back at an office? Have you always been remote? What, what's your working scenario at the moment? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, before I started my company, I was working in offices in previous years, but since I started Badassery, it's been fully remote. I was based out of New York City for the longest time, working out of co-working spaces. Currently, I actually um, am a digital nomad. So I'm right now, I'm in Toronto. A few weeks back, I was in Mexico for a couple of months. So I'm, I'm hopping all over the place. And my team is also fully remote. Nice. How many in the team, by the way? So we're, we're five people. Nice, 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 nice. Yeah. Okay, um, personally or professionally speaking, what's been the biggest learning for you over the last two, three years? Hmm. That's an interesting question. The quote that I had sent you before comes to mind, which is... Oh, hold on. Up. That's yeah. the Desert Island tweet. I can't, I can't let you have that one now. You've got to think it. of something okay. else. Can't let it out of the bag early. <laughs> Okay. Um, I think the biggest thing I've learned is that everything is figure outable. I guess maybe that's not just one thing, but I've I thought that what I had, I guess, like envisioned uh, for like different challenges with my business or whatever the case might be, might just be impossible. And I've just realized really creative ways to navigate what I don't know and how to get to where I need to be. So not necessarily one particular thing, but I, I really did figure out that like everything is figure outable. I say that to my team all the time. I love that. I think that's the that is for me a key thing about people like you who do these sort of platforms and communities and build things. Yeah. There's so much that can go wrong. And during a pandemic, it's like, yes, that throws up a lot of opportunities for people, but also it throws up a lot of roadblocks. People are like less oh, inclined yeah. to spend money, time and that sort of thing. So knowing and also having that mindset of like, I can make this happen, not like just charging through walls, but, you know, figuring out how to go around wall, over a wall, under a wall and that sort of thing. So oh, no, yeah. I 100% agree with that. That's a good, that's a good one to have. Um, I'm going to talk about badassery first, and then I want to talk oh. about DEI. Um, badassery, it's a platform or really a marketplace, I think is how you describe it, isn't it, for event organizers. And you can book a speaker in up to three clicks or less. What what drove you to set it up? Mm. Yeah, so my initial driver actually was born out of a frustration, which I think is quite common for founders. But as you had read in my bio, I had been doing 
a lot of work in um, sort of like loosely in the DNI space. So I was working to get a lot of teen girls involved in tech careers, or I was le- uh, looking to make mental health more um, inclusive or talked about. You know, there's always been this access piece for me. And so when I was running um, programs and events over at Built by Girls, which was a, a brand under Verizon Media, actually, I was going to a lot of conferences and events and just, you know, all the things of like tech crunch or disrupt, or, you know, all those like buzzword innovate. And I'm seeing all the really similar types of people up on stage. And we know this is quite the problem, especially in the tech world. But I transparently grew so frustrated with it because my background is not a traditional one. My parents are immigrants from Lebanon. I grew up, you know, not having a true idea of the possibilities I had in the U.S. or outside of being an engineer or a doctor or whatever, you know, the immigrant parent dream is. So for me, it was always super important to have different stories represented on stage. So that's in short why I had eventually started Badassery in its current form. But yeah, it was just born out of a frustration for not seeing the types of stories um, on stage that I felt could have the greatest impact. And um, how's it how's it going? You obviously got, you've got five team members. You said your yeah. um, platforms work, and I think it works on Airtable, doesn't it? How many people are on it? What types of people? Now's the time to brag. <laughs> it's going really well. And to your point about the pandemic, wow, that was a true nightmare for us as a company because the event space really shot down. Um, but now that we figured out the pivot, going from in person events to digital, you know, now this quarter, especially in last quarter, has been really huge for us. So to answer your question, in terms of how many people are on it and who is using it. So we are super highly curated. So right now we have about 75 speakers. They come from all walks of life. We have people who are, you know, the diversity and inclusion uh, managers at Peloton, let's say. We have a head of product from EA. We have people who are starting their own companies. We have podcasters. So it's, it's really all over the place. Generally, the focus is in tech and media. Um, And they can speak to their expertise, yes, of course, but also we vet them so that they can speak to their personal journeys as well. And in terms of who is booking, we have some really awesome, awesome clients, honestly. So actually, we found that our sweet spot oftentimes is, as you can imagine, the tech tech companies. Uh, So we have bookings from the likes of NASDAQ. We do a lot of work with universities like Harvard. Um, we have like class pass. So we, we have, we have companies all over who are just looking to essentially bring our speakers in particularly to engage their employees and, um, help them learn about really cool topics in a, in a different light. So we work with them. We also work with really large events and conferences all over the world. So it's all over the place, but TLDR, it's honestly, it's going super, super well. Good, I'm glad. What's because yeah. I I learned about you what a year ago I think it was maybe a bit I think less. So. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I can't remember. I think I was looking for like speaker bureaus that were like different yeah. that offered different because bo- you go on one speaker bureau and it might as well be a clone of another one. That's what I've always found. <laughs> yeah, 100%. I've, it's it's nuts, isn't it? And and to be honest, yeah. the one thing which was really interesting was you cannot. Um, what do you call it, break down like who you want to search for. It's usually by a topic, mm-hmm. unless you know that person's name. So it's quite hard, in essence, mm-hmm. to sort of um, get a, a varied diet, let's say, of people that you can pick on a topic um, easily because of the way that they set themselves up. And they've all used really bad legacy systems. You mm-hmm. use Airtable, so you can just like, <laughs> yeah. you know, 
update put things out and that sort of thing right. so it's i like right. the sort of um the the energy that the site has but also the variety even though you've only said 75 yeah. it actually felt like a lot more than that so very yeah it was um it was <laughs> it was refreshing as well because i have really started looking into people's bios and names because the people you have on there you just don't find them in other places and that's for mm -hmm. a lot of different reasons but i think mm -hmm. you've curated a really interesting group of people on there and certainly mm -hmm. as i like to say future leaders you know uh anna from walmart was the one that i picked because i thought yes, um she was the one i I, I really resonated with her bio and what she's doing and also you know she just I think she just started with Walmart back then so yeah really really sort of interesting tell me a bit more about the vision for it and the plan for it what what's the next sort of two or three years look like for you yeah it's a really great question and you sort of pointed it out right right now we are built on Airtable we are still kind of hacking together the system and I'm really proud of all of the work that we have done but as it relates to the next major step for us, it is definitely building out a more formal marketplace. And even more so, like as you were talking about those other speakers bureaus, I think the, you know, for us, the biggest differentiator, obviously outside of our talent, is how easy it is to use the platform. So other speakers bureaus, you actually can't even transact on their website, right? It's basically just this giant database of like thousands of speakers who kind of all have similar backgrounds, similar stories, might even look the same, unfortunately. And for us, actually, we found that our sweet spot outside of, of course, finding this talent is how quickly you can transact as, as a booker, right? That's why we, we promote it as the marketplace where you can book in, in three clicks or less. So for us, the next couple of years is definitely going to be on doing a more formal product build. And with that, it'll unlock our capability of bringing on even more speakers, of getting even more bookings, and really just making both sides of the marketplace smarter, right? Because when we think about public speaking, it's not just like one and done, you get the gig and that's it. You know, we we are doing a lot of work for our speakers to help them prepare to get the feedback from the bookers, you know? And so we, we want our, our marketplace to actually be a place where our speakers and our bookers can get data and understand how are they becoming better? How are they engaging their audiences in a smarter way? Like, how can we... How can we measure the success of, you know, the, the investment we made on both ends? So for sure, the idea is that, you know, right now we're only based in the U.S., but to go to go global and to formalize our, our product build. Mm. You feel like a real disruptor in the market just simply because of the way that other speaker bureaus, and I'm not obviously putting you in the, with that lot, but you, you've, <laughs> yeah, you, you, you apply that function. Um with the way that um, you're very transparent about um, fees and what people do yeah. and what they don't do and that sort of thing. And I, I found that refreshing as well. And definitely a USP in the market. There aren't many um, bureaus out there that you can do the transaction on, number one, very good point. But number two is you kind of like, oh, I've got to give you all this information. And then I know oh, that you're going to smell yeah. that and just go have a £40,000 gig <laughs> for an hour. And I was just, totally. there's just so much, it's so weird. Oh. The speaker world in general, and I've been on that treadmill for a number of years because of the book yeah. and other things like that. And I've had amazing gigs and I've had weird gigs and I've had, <laughs> you know, just like what I've called fine gigs, you know, and to a certain degree, you can recycle some work and, you know, everything is, yeah. you know, malleable. But a lot of it is, you know, brand new thinking for a lot of people or should be, you know, for the money that yeah. certainly some are sort of getting. But um, yeah, that was one of the things. Why did you decide to, you know, because you didn't have to. Why did you no. decide to put people's fees there? Yeah, and I'm so happy you're calling that out because you're right. This industry is just one giant secret and you could be sitting on a panel as an unpaid speaker and the person next to you could be making 10K and you would never know because 
not only is the organizer obviously not telling you, but speakers aren't even talking about it with each other. And so why did I do that? I mean, so for me, it was twofold, right? So I, in my past life, obviously was an event organizer. I understood the pain points. And also in having conversations with event organizers, they often would give the excuse of like, we don't have enough time to find these, like this diverse talent. Like we don't know where to find them, all this stuff. So to me in my head, I was like, okay, these people have excuses and I want to reduce as much friction as I can so that they can't say we didn't have enough time. We had to go back and forth with the speaker. We had no. So my solution was, okay, let's just be as honest as we can. So we're going to give you everything you need. And in fact, you can book in literally three minutes. So you, this excuse that you're telling me doesn't exist anymore. So a big part of it was like, for me, yeah, let's just get, okay. So that's the problem. The solution is let's go fast. Let's like get rid of, of those friction points. And generally for me also, like the the focus I have for the speakers, we're not dealing with speakers who are like Tony Robbins and Oprah and all this. Like we're dealing with speakers who are either maybe getting their foot in the door in public speaking or have had just a few gigs. And with that comes a questioning of what they are worth on stage. So with the transparency, the intention is that they can see what their their counterparts or their colleagues or the spe other speakers on Badassery are also charging and just really understand how much they should be charging as well. Um, and I've, ju I've just never thought about money in a way that's shameful or, you know, competitive or anything like that. For me, money is what it is. And um, I, I, I never understood why it had to be so, so hush hush. And so especially as I've been dealing with our speakers who are coming from underrepresented communities, like my nightmare is not having them paid properly or, you know, in, in, in a way where they should understand how much they're worth. So I think on both sides, um, it was it was a really easy decision to be transparent on on the fees front. Yeah, I've done um, TBD for, sorry, Technology Behaviour Day for the conference that I run, if people don't know, for this, we just did the fourth year. Two of them have been virtual and the first two were um, in person and the fifth one will be in January. Um, I, I wanted it to be diverse from year one and I, I I look back and it wasn't as diverse as it should have been the year one. Year mm -hmm. two, definitely more diverse. Year three and four, we got 100% from um, DICE or Diversity Inclusion for Conference and Events. Um, it's not easy though. I must admit, I ask mm -hmm. a lot of people to speak for TVD and um, you get pushed back for various reasons, you know, busy, people flake and that sort of thing. But and it, it, it is terrifying for a conference um, runner mm -hmm. to ha to suddenly go from a diverse panel to a manual. I would I basically made the decision <laughs> if that happens, everyone gets cut. So I've sort of said that up front, and that's certainly cut down on people flaking and that sort of thing. But what would be your um, advice for conference goers who who, like you said, struggle to find diverse people apart from using badassery? How do you get them to sort of change their mindset and way that they work because it is so ingrained on how sort of conferences work, isn't it? Yeah. No. Definitely. I think this answer is twofold. One is rethink what diversity means at the conference. I'll talk about that in a second. And the second is rethink what it means to be a public speaker. So I'll go to the first one. The first one is that people assume that just because the people on stage are, are coming from underrepresented communities, that means it is a diverse conference, it's a diverse event, whatever the case might be. Okay, so let's look at your staff. Let's look at the people who are putting the programming together. Let's look at the team. Let's, so all of these pieces come down to representation. It's not just about the stage. And I often find there's a scramble to just like at last minute, 
try to get, you know, let's say a Middle Eastern speaker on stage, a woman, someone who maybe is neurodiverse. It's always coming together last minute, but it really has to come from the root of the culture of the organization or the event. Like all of these pieces are going to inform how you're thinking about the programming. And so I know like technically the answer or the question is more about the visibility and the speakers on stage. I mean, yeah, I would say to rethink what a speaker might be, because if we're always trying to get the people who are top level, who are CEOs, who are CMOs, all, all that stuff, realistically and statistically speaking, you know, people coming from underrepresented communities are still often working their way up there, right? Yeah. So you can't make an assumption that's like, okay, we either want to have the CEO of whatever XYZ company, but they also have to be, you know, black, a woman, whatever the case is, you, something has to give. And I'm not saying that in a way that's compromising the quality. In fact, it's it's not the case at all. Um, so I, I really encourage you or any event organizer to just think about the stories that haven't been heard. They don't have to be coming from the perspective of an executive or whatever, whoever you're looking for. And there are people of those caliber, obviously, who come from different ki kinds of communities. Mm. Um, and to your point, yes, it might just take some additional digging. So if you know it takes additional digging, start your search two months earlier, right? There's no excuses if you know this is coming up. So I think it's, yeah, it's starting the search earlier, going outside of your networks and making the ask. Like there are so many communities that exist where you could just send it to the community leader and say, hey, we're sourcing for speakers. Maybe it's like, let's hire tech ladies or um, you know, there, there's so many micro communities on Slack or whatever it is where you could just like do a, a call for for speakers. Um, but it just takes some more planning is the thing. So just have that planning, go outside your network and just rethink what it means to be sort of like a six plus uh, sorry, a successful public speaker that you'd want at your conference. Mm. It's interesting as well, because we talk about um, like leaders as they're the ones we want to like know from. And I've spoken to um, conference goers who say like, if we don't book those people, then we don't get the people that we want in. And it's kind of an interesting yeah. dynamic that we have to, you know, as, you know, entities that want to make money, but also TVD is great because you can push the envelope in lots of different ways. You know, you can get people from OnlyFans to come on, you know, as much mm -hmm. as you can, the CEO of Starling. Mm -hmm. You know, th that's the sort of fun bit of it, I think, because it pushes those two sort of people together. Although I would love to see that panel. That would be quite funny. Um, <laughs> it's, um, it's an interesting one from a financial perspective because you do have to sell tickets. Now more than ever, it's tougher to get people in a room. I don't think that will always be the same. I think it will come back or it is coming back. But um, it's it's definitely something to consider. What 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 advice would you give for people if they feel that they're in that scenario. Yes. So basically, if I'm understanding the question correctly, you want to get people who have a huge following, let's say, and sometimes people who might come from other other backgrounds or, or communities might not have that or might be like earlier in their speaking career. Yes. I mean Or just or this, just in leadership roles. Like you said, you know, that that is still very unrepresentative of people being in leadership roles for a lot of different communities. Um if you're an entity that's trying to make money um, but and that's what you think that people want to you know hear from in order for them to give you their money how would you counsel people to sort of think differently if that makes sense hmm, it does make sense and I would never advise that you give the audience what you think they want versus what they're telling you they want yeah. obviously I think it's a it's a happy medium um, but you are in a position where you can get super 
creative like I, I mean obviously if you're holding a conference for executives specifically like yes obviously have executives <laughs> find the executives and and there are going to be all types of of executives out there just might take some more digging but let's say if it's a conference around leadership I mean then you have such a luxury of getting super creative with what that means right you could even have for example one of our speakers is 21 years old and she started um, Juve Consulting. So it's like a Gen Z consulting company. And now they're working with huge corporate clients. Um, but she's not somebody I would necessarily think of as like an executive, right? She's like a 21-year-old student who goes to, you know, some top university. But if if the topic is broad enough and you can mold it, I, I would say there's so many ways to look at, at, um, at the programming and also add the value to your audience I think it's just a matter of like us thinking that x equals y but really like pe what people need to know is like that thinking needs to be challenged you know there's so many paths that people have taken so many ways other people think of leadership and so yeah if 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 there's a specific conference, like I said, like for executives, like obviously go for it, but we do, it's just our responsibility as people who are putting the programming together to just try to get more creative with the programming and fit it maybe more around some of the speakers that you want on stage versus the other way. Yeah, I agree. I think a lot of it is down to sometimes people uh, buy with logos, if that makes sense. So they see like a lot of logos they know and they think that will be relevant. Other people, they're looking for specific names. It's kind. Of, it, I've always tried to make TBD accessible. So the price is never over £100. It's just like nuts. Yeah. But I see all these like festival of marketing or whatever it is, you know, or marketing <laughs> festival, yeah. let's say that in case it's specific. Um, and it's like 400 500 £600. And the value that so they... The, or, yeah. Exactly. But they have to charge that in order to make the money back that they've done for people on stage but i'm not even sure when you get those people on stage that the truth bombs are dropped or that you get the non-filtered non-pr marketing sort of thing but the people who are sort of in the middle or just coming up to those sort of leadership roles often have i find the best advice to give because they're doing it and they're moving up and finding the challenges and often coming up against hard things like waiting for a golden parachute to you know unfurl so mm -hmm. for me i find those people have the better um you know, better insights that I'm finding, you know, and they're yeah. more creative, but yeah. No, for sure, for sure. And and you hit the nail right on the head. I think the reason why we're taking off the past few months, especially even the past year is because there has been a huge realization that people just want to get real, very similar to the way that you approach your conference. Like people no longer want to hear from, from other speakers who are so far removed from reality. I think there's a time and a place for that. Obviously, these motivational speakers and sometimes these executives, and there's sometimes this need to feel inspired. But with obviously COVID and the hardships of the past few years, people just want to come. If they're going to spend one hour, let's say, online even now, they want to go and know that they're going to be connecting with a human, not, not just hearing from a speaker. And to your point, oftentimes, and the things we often assess for for our speakers is like, can they connect on that human level, which means that they are super comfortable being vulnerable. And it means that they are confident in their journeys, not in a way that is like uh, judgmental of other people's or think that their journey is right or wrong in a way that's just very realistic and very raw. And right now, I think truly that's what audiences want. And I've seen more and more um, really big conferences adjusting their strategies to be that way. So yeah, I totally agree with you. It's like, there's a, there's a lot of pieces to think about, but I, I do think there's such a benefit to having these 
maybe not really senior or very executive um, speakers up on stage all the time. And yeah, paying them so much. They charge a crazy amount. It's, it's out of control. Yeah, that that is a good phrase to use, out of control. I think people are doing it. <laughs> people are trying to make up what they've lost in the last two years now. I, I was interested because I always just sort of like find out where the market is and that sort of thing for different, well, for myself, but also other people. Um, and um, yeah, the numbers are going back to crazy film and that sort of thing. But um, we, won't, we won't talk specifics, but those lists are out there should people want to Google them. Um, that last question is nice sort of way of easing into DEI. Let's talk about inclusion for a bit. Um, it's a topic I think we've covered in every season of Mousewash, actually, from a lot of different angles. We've had, um, oh, uh, we had a Rouge. She was an activist. We had TV writers, um, behavioral economists and lots of people beyond. Um, it's an interesting area for a lot of people, but it's also fraught with danger for a lot of people or so they may feel. Um, you grew up in North Hampshire with Lebanese immigrant parents, you said, um, mm -hmm. and that area was over 90% white and that sort of thing. What was it like growing up there and how did it sort of form who you are today? Like, give us an idea of sort of what you would go through, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, I grew up in New Hampshire, which is not super far from Boston, about one hour. And yes, my parents are from Lebanon. So what was it like growing up? I think this is... I had a very typical sort of like immigrant family experience where being in my household felt like one world and being outside of my household felt like a total other one where you always had to sort of adjust. Um, and yeah, I'm trying to figure out how to answer the question, but I think generally it was always just hard to understand how to fuse the worlds because yeah, my, my house, obviously, my family and, and Middle Eastern culture is always just about the family and dinner time and studying and homework and, and all of that. And, and that was so beautiful. But then when once you step out the door, and you obviously don't see people who look like you or people like, you know, it's very typical. I don't know if you've watched my big fat Greek wedding. But when you bring like, you know, yeah. Lebanese food to lunch, and you're like, Oh, my God, not everyone has this like, weird food that smells like so many spices. But it's so, you know, now I'm being far from home. I'm like, please give me that um it's it's sort of ingrained this self-consciousness in you and you know I think as a kid even my hair is really curly and in my town no one like I mean obviously somebody's gonna have curly hair but everyone kind of has sort of like that straight blonde hair whatever the case might be so even things like that like I would straighten my hair I would get it chemically relaxed I would try to start taking like quote-unquote normal food um to school all the things I think is very common for for you know, a, a third culture kid to go through. Um, and so in that, it kind of informed how I started like envisioning my own world. So oftentimes I would find myself taking magazines, American magazines and, and forming my own kind of world in collages because I just couldn't understand, oh. yeah, what, you know, what, um, what the uh, the rest of the world might look like so it was a lot of kind of like p literally piecing things together because at home we you know we would watch like lebanese soap operas and i'd go to school and people would be like did you watch like that episode of degrassi and i'm like what <laughs> what is that um so <laughs> yeah it's it, i think it's uh it was led to a state of constant confusion but i do attribute it to the fact that i am so flexible now i am so comfortable being in situations where i don't understand the language or I don't understand the culture or I'm much more emp empathetic now 
Um, and so I think it's also driven me to an affinity towards traveling and just taking some of these bigger risks because I just know that I can figure it out somehow, even if like the language is off or, you know, the culture is off or the food is maybe different, you know, all those things. So, um, yeah, I don't know if that answered your question necessarily, but there, yeah, it was a very, very formative part of my life, obviously. Yeah, no, it, it sort of gives me a sense of like why you got into it, if that makes sense. And I, I from the, the collage comment that really makes a lot of sense so 100 percent um how let's talk about um dei businesses and that sort of thing so so how seriously do you think the average company is taking dei right now is it just something for big companies to be mark marked against or do you think there's a real sort of movement for people to make real change i see a lot of data i see a lot of lip service being paid but i'm interested <laughs> in what your what your take is yeah, I think it's hard for me to make a blanket statement because my world is still very much in the tech and the media world. So I, I don't want to speak for the other industries at all. Um, but I can say, at least for the people that we're working with through Badassery, that there is a very, very deep understanding of why DEI needs to be prioritized. And I do find that there is there is a huge hunger to understand how to make it work. Am I saying all of them are doing it perfectly? No. You know, I've had some conversations with some very major companies that are huge and they only have, you know, one head, like DEI head manager. Of, yeah. yeah, head of maybe, or even sometimes it's just a DEI manager at the entire global organization. And that blows my mind. So I, th I think there's now, not now, and even in the past few years, a huge understanding for why it needs to be done. Um, I think the confusion still lies in how it needs to be done in a very genuine way that actually retains their talent. And I think that that paired with COVID and lack of, uh, you know, the lack of motivations employees are going through right now is proving to be very difficult for any HR or DEI department. Um, but I, I definitely do feel that there's, there's definitely a sense of urgency for sure the past few years. Mm. You, you you talked about numbers there and big companies and that sort of stuff. Let's get specific for a second. Say if you're a company with uh, 500,000 people, you're spread across multiple countries and that sort of thing. What does a DEI function look like for that company? Or what's the best, what would you advise best practice might look like in that sort of scenario? Obviously, every company is different. Every industry is different. But as a rule of thumb, if you had 500,000 employees, what would you expect? Would it be a, a group of 10 people spread in multiple territories? Would it be a centralized function? Give it, is that question even answerable? It is answerable, but not for me because I've never worked in DEI specifically. I can tell you what I have seen based on my conversations, but it's yeah, in no it. way advice because I've, I've never worked in HR. Um, five, so you said 500, I mean, ideally, yes. So there, there would be something centralized based on my conversation, some, some sort of like head of DEI head of diversity, whatever the case might be, that has a core team under them that sets the strategy. And that strategy obviously would go across globally. And I'm not sure if people have heard of employee resource groups necessarily, but they're called ERGs or some, some might call them BRGs, business resource groups, where essentially it's you know a group that represents a particular community within the organization. So it might be uh, I don't know, women at Spotify or parents at Twitter. Um, and they end up meeting together, having events together, just so that they have that sense of community within the organization. Those do fall under DEI strategies. And so different locations of the 
of the organization will have those those teams or those groups led by an employee all over the world. Obviously, the ideal there is that they're increasing retention and engagement, attracting new talent who might not see a place for themselves at the company. Um, but yeah, I would say generally that's my knowledge of it. There's definitely like this sort of HQ DNI strategy team. I don't know how large they might be, um, but they're definitely very data driven and they they think about everything from recruiting obviously to onboarding to making sure that the employees are engaged because i think the thing with dni that i that kind of bugs me is that people think it's just a blanket statement right diversity and inclusion are so different and the inclusion piece yeah. is actually the really and i'm sure you've had this conversation with all the people who talked about dni but the inclusion piece is actually the more difficult part even because that means making sure that the employees still feel included after they have signed the contract. And that's where the real work happens. It's like, okay, cool. You found the person you want. Now, how do we keep them? How do we make sure they feel seen? How do we make sure they're, they're on a track for management or leadership or whatever the case might be? So there are really a lot of factors to look at um, across the board. And I, I don't envy DNI teams right now. It's a, such a tough time, I think. But um, I, yeah, definitely had conversations with people who are doing it right. Mm. Are there any names that you can mention of people that you think is doing it right? Hmm. Any names that I can mention? That's a good question. Mm-hmm. It's okay if not. Yeah, know, honestly, some no, people... they're coming to mind right now. But it's, yeah, I'll, I'll trickle back if anything. It's interesting because there, you know, you've got Gartner and you've got all the management firms pumping out information about DEI, which to, to the average, let's call me an average reader, which I am when it comes to DEI. I'm not an expert in it, but I did do some research around it. And it feels like there are a lot of platitudes being um, put out there as doctrine or how to and that sort of stuff. And it feels like mm-hmm, it needs mm-hmm. somebody to take it by the reins and go, this is how you set it out. If you are a company that has 500,000 people in multiple languages, you should have at least five people that do these functions. And it's getting to a stage where we're now like three years into the pandemic, where a lot of this was thrust on people, HR departments, or not if they didn't have them and that sort of stuff. And it yeah. it, it sort of gives me a sort of chill to sort of think, have, have we got any better? <laughs> do you think is that fair to say or do you do you just think that people have sort of go oh we made a statement we put up a black square on instagram what more oh. do you want yeah i feel the same exact way as you and i think that's also what i feel about the events industry as well where it just somehow feels so old school it's like dni i think because everyone it feels so new but so old at the same time where ever there's so many people who are doing the same efforts so many people who are making the same mistakes so many people who don't know what to measure how to start or whatever the case might be and even as i'm having conversations with our potential bookers let's say they i can have a sense that they're just like clawing to understand how to infuse this dni into their culture and it does yeah it does feel overly complicated i think the hard part becomes when it's up to the employees and the employees feel such a sense of urgency to build the DNI culture or build the ERGs, but they're not getting the support from the institution. And this is what I often find with ERGs, right? Um, so it gets, it gets super complex, or I've had conversations with a lot of people too, who never had a DNI role, for example, but might be a person of color and, or might have some sort of HR experience um, and they have just been tasked with taking on DNI initiatives and they feel very uncomfortable with that. So 
Yeah, it really does frustrate me. And, and, and to your point as well, yes, like I think oftentimes people think just outward, outwardly showcasing, um, I guess, sort of like that black circle or black square, whatever the case might be, is is just enough. And And sometimes, you know, sometimes it can be just enough if you're not sure how to support or you're not sure what there is to say. But yeah, across the board, I, I feel you're right. Like we're moving very, very slowly and there's still, I'm not sure if there has been a guidebook for corporate or there has been, I know there are some agencies that are popping up to help uh, organizations with, with DNI, but it feel, it still feels like such a mess. Yeah, I'm part of the Future Work Group for um, Global uh, Tech Advocates, and it's um, an, an interesting bunch of um, people coming at things from different areas. And we have uh, a person who's specifically targeted on this that's pulling things out, and, and we're putting out best practice. And it's an interesting thing because it's changing so quickly. And I think that that's one of the issues that a lot of people have with it when they're in companies, large or small. It's not that it should be a tick box because that's the worst thing it could possibly ever end up as, but they have, everyone's got so much coming at them. Everything's changing legislation and that sort of stuff. I can understand why people are overwhelmed with it and they might deprioritize it because it's easier to, if that makes sense. How, mm -hmm. what would be your recommendation if people feel like they're getting into that sort of scenario with their business or they've never even thought of DNI? Mm, kind of, yeah, it's true. The deprioritization is such an easy thing <laughs> to want to do. Um, and I think that's because we look at it as something that is a job versus a benefit. And I would really, really challenge people to understand why it matters so much to have different thoughts or brains or voices on a team. I mean, I think people just think it's this checkbox where it's, you know, we're going to put out a report and say 50% of our leadership team is is female identifying or whatever the case might be, mm. which, you know, also is great. I think that there is absolutely no shame in showcasing the incredible work that organizations have done and and encouraging others to do the same. But I, I always think when people are just talking about numbers and all that, like, yes, of course, there's there has to be data to back up the value. But at the same time, there really has to be a deep understanding of why having these different types of, of people on your team matters. And once there's that commitment or that understanding, I think it becomes so much easier to prioritize. I think we always prioritize what we want to prioritize, right? Obviously, mm -hmm. like we're going to prioritize making money and all those things. And please obviously keep the businesses afloat. But if we collectively somehow realize that having these types of people on our team will move us closer to our business goals, not only that, but faster, then why wouldn't we do it? So it's just a reframe in, in how we're thinking. And I think, you know, as early as possible, we should be baking the DNI into our culture. And if not now, and we're already, you know, the businesses are already a few years in or whatever the case is, that's okay. Just start small and uh, you know maybe it starts just with recruiting or it starts with asking employees you know what are some of the biggest challenges that they're facing as a person of color or as an immigrant or whatever the case might be um there's still baby steps to get there but what i would encourage everyone to do is just remember why not just do it because we need to do it I think that's a great point, actually, that you, you I'll pick up on. Um, a lot seems to fall on the shoulders of leaders when it comes to DEI, and that's fine. That's you yeah. know a function of what they should do and that sort of stuff. But they aren't the only people in the business, and often they are removed from the day-to-day -day and sort of what it can look mm -hmm. like on, to use a horrible phrase, factory floor. You know, and they, mm -hmm. they'll walk the floor and that sort of stuff. Um, you mentioned regular employees and hiring. That is a great thing that people can do to change a dynamic in a company without the 
say so of leaders and that sort of thing, you can actively look for people that don't look like the rest of you. That's hard from a psychological point of view for a lot of people. And I believe Rory Sutherland talked about that on a previous episode of Mouthwash, um, because people, weirdly, they have biases and that sort of thing, unconscious, conscious, and they hire what's like them because they go down the pub with them or whatever it is and that sort yeah, of stuff totally. but but those people they're not the only people to hire and that sort of thing so that, that's one thing that um what do you call it regular employees can do A- any other things that you've sort of come across mm, yeah and i think to, to that point also realizing that it shouldn't just be up to us you know there's a lot of tools now that exist to remove biases from application processes even down to removing names or photos or whatever it is from resumes or checking you know the job descriptions with with other people or that or these platforms i don't know what they're called what their names are but to see if there are any words that might be you know discriminatory or whatever great the case might great be. example so, yeah, so I, I think people often think it's, it is our responsibility, but also, by the way, we're you know we're in 2022. There's so much tech that exists to challenge us as humans and just remove all these things. There's no excuses anymore. Yeah. Um, and I would say, so you asked about other other tips. I think the biggest thing for employees is to just speak up. You know, as someone who is a person of color and you know worked at large tech companies in the past, um, you know we would have our crew of people who you know we talk about these things to each other right like and and the the biggest thing i always encourage people to do and i did this when i worked at you know verizon media or wherever i was is to just elevate it to to leadership to the bosses to whatever the case might be because oftentimes like you said leadership is really removed but the thing is that leadership generally does want to help they're just moving really really fast and sometimes don't prioritize the right thing they're not devils you know they just just have so much going on so it kind of has to be a manifesto and it kind of you know sucks to say that it it might be on the employee's shoulders but if i think the employees should always be elevating these things or should be creating clubs or should be pushing or should be doing whatever the case might be um so i I always am encouraging you know my community members or whoever the case might be to to just speak up very vocally about what's going on and how it can be uh, made better and I'm wondering what else on the other organizations side. I think like the biggest thing I'm, I'm one other thing I would say is for people who are just starting DNI departments or have them talk to other, this kind of goes back to your point about like not having a standardized guidebook, let's call it for, for DNI strategy, just talk to other companies and reach out to them and talk to their, to their DNI teams. I've had so many conversations with DNI teams who are doing the exact same things and making the exact same mistakes. And I'm just shocked at how they don't talk to each other. I, I it's just so bizarre. So I think as someone who might be a professional in the DNI department, let's say at, at some of these large organizations and might be feeling lost, like just just reach out to other companies and and get the tea. You know, it's can be that simple in becoming more efficient and better for employees. Mm. When I was doing um, research for the show, I, I came up with some interesting statistics. I think um, the one that was, well, there was two that sort of struck me. So the first one was from Edelman's famous trust barometer, and it says four point, uh, people are 4.5 times more likely to say a brand would earn or keep their trust by acting in response to racial injustice. So that's interesting. They do want to see people having um, responses to things like um you know, murders or whatever injustices. Um, and then the other one, it was quite interesting to sort of see the um, mentions in earning statements um, and for, of the S&P 500 uh, calls 
where they mention things like diversity, equity and inclusion, um, the mentions of it have increased 658% just since 2008. Uh, and that's the thing. So I thought that was interesting. We are we are talking a lot and I'm not but I'm yeah. not necessarily seeing the action. I definitely think lots of things have come out from the chat that we've had today. Um, I'm interested in um, and I'm not sure how much you're going to be able to sort of give away because I know you've you know, some of the work is secret. But how do people sort of measure the value of DEI when it comes to uh, people? It could be obviously hiring uh, different sort of diversity of events of speakers and that sort of stuff do you think uh you know there's there's a real case for the measurement that's what people sort of need to get sorted in order for it to move up higher of the priorities yeah right yeah it's sad to say but yes really understanding the business impact so if we take for example my industry which is the event industry and and the diversity there of course you're going to measure tickets sold revenue rsvp count all of that stuff. Um, and yeah, you know, it, it's really hard to make a case to your superiors about the importance of it unless there's, you know, we talk about the bottom line. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's definitely the case. We also have to be patient with it and understand that it might be a long tail investment at the same time. Um, so yeah, but there, there's ways to, to look at the success of it that doesn't come down to maybe revenue generated, like you said, you know, for um if yeah if you're trying to measure success maybe it might be just general i'm talking about companies particularly generally how many applicants were brought in yes how many of them come from underrepresented communities um how many at least in the event space uh in are bringing in different types of audiences for us uh yeah so it's, it's kind of it's kind of all over the place but i yeah i do feel like for us to have a faster emotion they're Yes, to your point, it's a bit sad, but there has to be an understanding of how it impacts the bottom line. Mm. And the reality is that it really can. It really can in so many ways. Yeah, I think I think that's the, that's definitely what the research shown me when I was looking through it. And people are still struggling with it, even the big boys uh, or girls and uh, people um, from the management. Uh, I always call the management firms big boys, but because the tragedy of that is most of them used to be boys. That's not the case anymore. So I need to really fix that in my brain, but I'm working on it. Um <laughs> When I said, when I was first wanting to talk about DEI on this um, season, I, I sort of thought, oh, my God, do you remember that virtual reality thing where they basically put a virtual headset on and um, forced people to go through what it was like to live a day as a black person? And it was mm. it really did break a lot of people on both sides. Um, and the data shows that it does work. But there are obvious issues with um, the experiences, which we've both just mmmed about. Um, what do you think about uh, the future of DEI for training is? Mm -hmm. I did something like that when I was at TechCrunch maybe three, four years ago. And it is, wow. I mean, it was, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't even know how to, I don't even have a word for it where it was like terrifying and shocking and made me empathetic, but also made me have so many more questions. Yeah. 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 So um, I think that was a very maybe extreme way of doing the trainings. But in terms of the, did you, sorry, did you ask me about the future of DEI trainings or future of DEI generally? Uh, let's talk about training specifically for that one. Trainings. Hmm. I mean, again, I've never done DNI trainings or hosted any. Um, but based on what I know, we are getting bookings for. I think that a lot of DNI experts or specialists within companies are realizing that they need to start bringing in 
more external people. I think it's been a fusion of a couple of things. A lot of it has been sort of like internal incubation, I found, where the mm. DNI teams are trying to test a lot of things or host uh, workshops or whatever the case might be on their own. And now they're actually bringing in, let's say, our speakers or I'm sure other speakers from, from other organizations to sort of be that supplemental factor. And it's not necessarily that our speakers are talking about DNI. It's actually not the case at all. But what's happening is that they're speaking about their stories and their expertise and all that stuff. And obviously the employees at the organizations are understanding what it's like to have someone speak who might either look like them or look totally different from them, but understand that, you know, they're human too, or that they go through a lot of the same challenges as well. So yeah, I, I'm not I'm not sure even what the existing training might might look like, but I think the future is definitely going to be something that is way more raw. We're no longer, you know, in an era where we're just going to talk about sexual harassment training at work, right? Like we were in the 70s and watching those weird videos. Um, but it's just going to be something that's really, really open. And I think employees are going to be asking for a lot more than employers are going to be potentially comfortable opening up about. Mm. So I don't necessarily know what the structure might look like, but I do find that there's a huge hunger for just having conversations as they are, no longer hiding anything and and just getting super real with their employers. Mm. Um, on that sort of verge of the future, I'm excited to uh, interview. It's a company called hundo.careers later in the season. They're helping young people build careers and new business models in the metaverse. Very exciting uh, sort of organisation, startup-y type thing. Um, what's your take on the metaverse, though, in the future of the world of work and conferences? Do you think uh, it's going to be all, you know, legless uh, people roaming about? Or do you think it's still a good time to invest in Zoom? <laughs> hmm. <laughs> As it relates to events, yeah, I'm not entirely sure, actually. As it, I mean, as I'm thinking about, yeah, I guess particularly events, I think everything will for sure be hybrid forever. Um, I don't have much, I don't have truly much knowledge or opinion on the metaverse, unfortunately. Um, but... I think, yeah, I think people will start getting way more creative with ways to connect, obviously, in a way that is, it keeps them, it keeps them excited. I mean, I, I don't know how else to say it, but I mean, I've come across a bunch of platforms that are doing. Oh, Danielle, we've lost your sound for a bit there. Ah, you're back. Can you say Am that I last back? answer again for us? You're back. Yeah, you, you just went out, but now you're back. <laughs> I'm so sad. Where did you lose me? Uh, it was about the metaverse, that one. <laughs> so I don't have an opinion on the metaverse. And then <laughs> that was my mic drop. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fine. But also, that's fine if you want to end that question there. <laughs> a lot of people don't. They're very, very unsure yeah, about it at the honestly, moment. I don't, um, yeah, honestly, I don't yeah. have much of an opinion on it. Yeah, it's interesting from conferences perspective, because you obviously can visit a conference if you're on a mobile phone, but you could have a much more richer experience when you're going around an environment and sort of things happening if you walk through a loop and that sort of stuff. There's an, there's an argument to say virtual reality is going to really have a massive impact on the um, events you know world. I, I find it all very interesting at the moment, but no one's doing it, if that makes sense. There's lots of these virtual yes. worlds for like pride and that sort of thing, but they cost hundreds of thousands of pounds. And wow. so, you know, to do it for one event, interesting to do it for an event every year where you create one and change a few things. Possible, <laughs> you know, that's, you know, pay once, use many, you exactly. never know. Um, okay. 
Let's talk uh, Desert Island Tweets, the part of mouthwash where you pick a tweet or two that's changed your mind or way of thinking in some way. So if you turn your attention to the nest, you'll be able to see uh, the first tweet uh, that um, uh, you picked. Hang on, sorry, I'm just clicking madly through. Um, and it's to do with um, a quote that you saw from Joseph Campbell. And the quote reads for people uh, listening on the podcast, we must be willing to let go of the life we planned so as to have the life that is waiting for us. Why did you pick this one? Mm-hmm. Yes, it kind of alludes to what I mentioned in the beginning, but I think I had a very specific idea of what my life would be like, both professionally and personally. And anytime I come to a really big pivot point I just think I have to trudge through and make it work and do all these things and to a certain extent yes but I think this quote always reminds me that maybe if I relinquish some of that control over what I thought might have to happen something else that's more beautiful could also appear so it's just a good reminder to stay firm in your belief but also really flexible and and just have faith in, in what the future might hold love that and i've put up another one via seth godin and if you want to follow seth godin he's an amazing living legend in the world of marketing and selling and lots of things like that um he can be followed at this is seth's blog uh on twitter and um the uh, blog post is called and maybe it's enough tell us why you picked this one Mm -hmm. sort of similarly i love i love seth godin he's truly a genius um but the whole post i mean it's only a few sentences about what we might consider enough um and I often find, I th- you know, I've struggled, maybe it's because I, I am a child of immigrant parents with this concept of perfection and always going way overboard with everything or trying to make sure everything is perfect before I submit something or, you know, yeah, I, I just have found that actually my perfection has been inefficient for me as a business owner, especially in my early years. Um, so I think this one, Seth is basically just saying that enough is a choice. And I love that concept. It definitely makes it more complicated for me to just kind of decide when enough is enough. But I love the concept of like, you know, if you do decide that it is just enough, whatever that might mean to us personally or professionally, then it just is, right? There's no no battle with that, nothing. It just is. So yeah, I think that helps me stay sane. Oh, I love that. That's a, that's a nice place to wrap episode 10 of season four. Uh, my thanks to you, Danielle, um, for making DEI more acceptable, accessible, and also creating badassery, the marketplace for talent uh, you want to hear from. Um, both, I think, are much needed. Um, if you want to find out more about Danielle and badassery, you just hop over to badassery-hq.com. Badassery-hq.com. Or anywhere else they can find you, Danielle, where would that be? LinkedIn would be the best. It would just be backslash Danielle dash Latif. You do prefer LinkedIn over Twitter. <laughs> I know this to be true. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Paul, but you've coached me to Twitter greatness, I think. Now I know. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. One more for Elon. There you go. Right. Okay. Doke. Any um, final words of advice uh, for the listeners, Danielle? Hmm, no, but just, I guess, as it relates to, to diversity, remember the power of diversity and not the fact that it just has to be done. 
Yes, I love that. Don't make it a checkbox. Yes. Make it a tick box. Yes. Okay, okay. Um, up next on Mouthwash is Rima Boshinshan. She runs Dialogue, where she counsels top CEOs on creating workforces of the future and a whole lot more. We are going to be talking and exploring emerging human behaviours in and out of the workplace. I urge you to tune in. She is an amazing force. Head over to mouthwash.norby.live and you will get a text so you don't miss a minute of any of the episodes of Mouthwash this season or next. Mouthwash is produced by Suze and the team at Big Tent Media. As always, everything Mouthwash, even the text alerts, can be found over at mouthwashshow.com. You'll find out who's coming up, who's next, what we're thinking, and a lot more. I am a firm believer that you do not remember the days, we remember the moments, and I hope this has been one for you. I am Paul Armstrong. This is Mouthwash. Listen in again soon for more fresh chat that leaves you more confident. Thanks for listening to Mouthwash. Please share it in a network you trust and check out our sponsors. Season 4 of Mouthwash was sponsored by Workplace by Meta. The easy-to-use features at Workplace help people work together in new ways. To make your place of work a great place to work, visit workplace.com forward slash human. That's workplace.com forward slash human. Have a great day.